guys. Welcome back to Talking with TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. I'm really, really excited to bring you episode 50 of the podcast. And I've got one of the absolute legends of Australian sport in tennis icon, Pat Cash. Can't actually wait to speak to Pat. I grew up playing a lot of tennis. I used to idolize guys like himself and Stefan Edberg. I used to love the serve volleyers. Unfortunately for myself, I was a pretty short bloke, so serve and volleying wasn't the greatest thing for me because I used to get lobbed all the time. So thanks, Pat. Thanks, Stefan, for that. I probably should have been watching more of Michael Chang. But, you know, it was pretty impressive the way both of those guys played at both the Australian Open and Wimbledon. They used to love this, the grass. Obviously, it's a faster court. So it was just great. And, you know, especially when you get a good bait, when they're versing a good baseliner and... You know, those rivalries that both of those guys had with a number of baseliners over the years from America and Sweden was was just scintillating tennis to watch. Guys, so being the 50th episode, just a big shout out to everyone tuning in, whether it's your first episode or your 50th, I really appreciate you actually checking out the show and all the support that you have brung. Best, if you can do me one big favor, is just continue to spread the word. I really appreciate all the, you know, tagging me and posts on social media. Probably the best way, tag me on Twitter at TalkingWithTK. Share it with your family and friends. Just tell them via email or text, whatever it is. Just really just help me get the message out there. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Populous. Populous and the happiness platform. You can check it all out at www.populous.com.au slash happiness dash platform happiness platform it's by Ro and kim singh and it's crucial especially in businesses today trying to find and try and be the best you so what i mean by that is they've got this scientifically validated program that will help you in the workplace so if you're struggling in the workplace at home or even at play i think this is perfect for you they've got a step-by-step guide and platform and I've done most of the thing myself so I would never actually promote anything on my site that I know wouldn't work 100%. So definitely check out their site if you're if you're big into culture and trying to bring something new to the organization in terms of the happiness. I think a lot of happiness starts from the outside and then it gets bring brought back into the inside in the business, but a lot of things can also be done. These are the guys that you want to see if you're looking to drive results and bring in happier employees. So like I said, check out their site, www.populous.com.au slash happiness dash platform. And I'll have all those in the show notes as well. Guys, I'm really proud to bring this one to you. So I introduce episode 50 with Pat Cat. All right, guys, my special guest is Pat Cash. Pat is an icon of Australian tennis. After turning pro in 1982, he won the 1987 Wimbledon and also competed in five Grand Slam finals across singles and doubles. Pat led to Australia to two Davis Cup wins in 1983 and 1986, and I'm honoured to have him on the show. I welcome Pat Cash. Pat. Thank you. Thanks very much, mate. How are you? I'm doing absolutely great, mate. Like I told you before, we... We started, you and Stefan Edberg were my idols, so it's an absolute honor <laughs> to have you on the show, buddy. 
Yeah, well, the old-fashioned serve volleys, weren't we? Uh, there was not not too many of them around anymore. So probably only a gee, I can't think of one. Maybe Federer does it some from time to time, but. Uh, yeah, dinosaurs, I think, uh, we're probably called these days. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We'll touch on it in a yeah. second, because I really want to get into that kind of mindset of being a surf volleyer. But I want to just start in the present at the moment, because I really like your five-point Muff Fridays every couple of weeks that you bring that out. And All right, thank you. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work in terms of keto, and you look in amazing shape right now, mate. So tell us a little about how you got into <laughs> keto, and maybe... Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. let's start there. Well, funny enough, I was looking back at uh, one of your, your podcasts and you, you had a great interview with uh, Dom uh, D'Agostino. D'Agostino, yeah. Uh, yeah, who is the, uh, he's sort of, well, he's the forerunner of this keto diet. But um, yeah, for the last uh, well, 18 months or almost two years now, I've been on the keto diet, which is about to go crazy. Um, it's not something that athletes take. What, it's, it, what basically is, is your body is running on, on uh, instead of carbohydrates, you know, you used to carbo load the pastas and and the rice and the potatoes and all that sort of stuff, which would give you energy. Yeah. Well, simply put, that boils down to pretty much sugar in your in your body because um, they they break down uh, simple carbohydrates. What the keto diet does is uses oils and fats for fuel, and that means it's kind of the stuff that we've heard for for a long time, but it's kind of kind of all the scientific back backing now is just coming out. It's uh, the olive oil. Um, you know, how many times we've heard this? People doing research on a certain group of Italians or Greeks who yeah. live to 150, and they all drink olive oil first thing in the morning. <laughs> well, you know that's that's it's all sort of coming through coconut oil, which I love, olive I love oil, too, yeah. butter. I mean, the breakfasts are, are amazing. But it's basically what you're doing is replacing. You're starving your body from carbs and replacing it with oils and uh, and. And burning on that, and and what it does, it's it quite simply, it starts burning the oils that you drink, you're having, are the same constitution as the the fats under your skin. Mm. So you, you your body starts burning the oils that you eat and the oils that they find under your skin. So you just start losing weight. You start your energy is just th- through the roof as far as consistency goes. It's uh, um, you know, all day you just feel like you've got fuel, and that's sort of but, you know, you probably say, well, why isn't everybody on this diet? Well, there's not, hasn't been a lot of research until recently. Um, it's been, this diet's been going on for a hundred years, actually, hundreds of years. And, but, uh, the research, the scientific research is now coming out and every, and, and a lot of dietitians, a lot of athletes are starting to, uh, a lot of athletes are starting to go back, go on it now. Um, but the, the, they talked about that it doesn't, um, you can't build muscle on it, which is, which is rubbish now. All the proof is that you can. And, and um, so I've been on the diet for yeah eighteen more, more than eighteen months. Um, basically, through one of the kids that I used to coach, he uh, I contacted. I was in touch with him, and and he became type two diabetic, and uh, he's super fit. And I said, it was just a really rare genetic thing. Something happened to him. He said, "But I don't take insulin or anything." I'm like, "What? What, what, what do you mean?" He says, oh, "I'm on the ketogenic diet. I just use my my body uses instead of sugars. It just uses the oils and the fats." And I was yeah. like. Ah, this makes complete sense. And and now, um, bizarrely enough, uh, after being on the diet, it's very tough to stick to. But uh, now there's um, there's a supplement out there which is made by uh, uh, a fantastic company um, called Prove It. And and uh, now you can actually drink <laughs> drink your ketones, which is what the body makes 
as fuel. Uh, so you can actually drink it and and be in this state of uh, energy and the and you know the uh, the effects it has on the brain. The brain just absolutely loves it. Uh, it's it's fixing all sorts of rashes and injuries and helping with uh, Alzheimer's. And I'm not just throwing these things out. They're actually it's all scientifically proven now. Wow. And of course, diabetics and everything. And and uh, yeah, so so I'm uh, I don't really like to push one type of diet because I think everybody's a little individual. But yeah. I'm right behind this. Uh, Right behind this this uh, this diet and 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 the and the and the supplements that are coming out and um, it's it's just phenomenal because it's going to start going a bit crazy at the moment um, in the next year or two. It, uh, yeah, so it's something that's very interesting. If somebody wants to try it. I've got uh, maybe I'll. Uh, yeah, yeah, drop me the link and uh, I'll put it up in the show notes anyway. But just to touch yeah, on get a sample and just just to put yeah, it's actually I might as well throw it out there. It's it's, it's really easy. You just have to go to drink. Yoursample.com. There you go. Drinkyoursample.com, and it'll come up with some information on it, and then uh, just put my name in, and, and the people can get a get a uh, good deal or a sample of it. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Pat, how many times a day would you actually take liquid compared to natural food? Uh, I, I pretty much just take it um, uh, in between meals. I mean, I I sweat a lot anyway, so when I'm still I'm still training. I'm not training a lot. I'm doing a lot of coaching, as you as you probably know these days. But yeah. um, I'm still on the court, so you know I'm a I'm a big believer in the in the uh, in eating you know uh, eating f- food. Uh, but in between in between, I would have I'll have the the liquid drink. Uh, you know, I drink apple cider vinegar, that sort of stuff to alkalize the alkalize the body. Um, you know, when you've had that, as many injuries as I've as I've had over the years, you sort of got to just look after the your joints and. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly sort of trying things and I've always been like that, uh, ever since I first went on the circuit, I was trying these things like, which were never un, which were unheard of called amino acids. Now everybody knows them of course as amino acids, but mm. back in my day, nobody knew what amino acids were and I had to go and get my blood tested by this group. Uh, one, one company in the world did it in America, in Atlanta. I used to send my pee over there, freeze it. Send it by special courier. Get my blood. Do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. My hair, my hair. They used to go and analyze everything, then send back this concoction, which was the most disgusting thing you, I've ever had in my life. And it was just pure amino acids. They're not no flavor or anything like you can buy now. <laughs> so I used to mix this up and and try it. And so I was always trying to be, you know, trying to find a cutting edge and. You know, there's a lot of information out there now, but you know, then there wasn't internet, so you just had to sort of research and find stuff. And I had a fantastic trainer called Dr. Ann Quinn, who, mm. uh, you know, I, who is, uh, you know, I, I recognise as one of the most important people in my career. And she was a she was cutting edge of her fitness, all the exercises you see athletes do these days, the, you know, the sprint work and the footwork and the agilities and the ladder work the she invented almost all of this stuff, and wow. um, you know, she, yeah, is, she's is she brilliant. is she Aussie or? She's Aussie, of course, she's Aussie. Yeah, um, bags for the wrong football team, but I, you know, I for, I forgave her and got let her join into the into, Who did she into go the for, team. Mate? I can't I won't even rec- I won't even recognise that team. Um, red, <laughs> they got red and red and black. I don't, they're exact up there. Hated rivals of my team. Is that the, uh, the no, club she, that she, likes supplements? Yes, yes, and yeah. Uh, well, she actually worked for them. She she, she supported uh, she supported the the pies, the magpies, growing up. Her dad was, but anyway, we, yeah, she was fantastic uh, 
cutting edge. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting time in the 80s because everything was changing. Um, you know, not only were the hairdos ridiculous and the clothes were all over the place, <laughs> fluoros, but the technology uh, was coming in. So wooden rackets were going out. Uh, graphite rackets, aluminium rackets, magnesium. I played with a magnesium racket, whatever that means. It's sort of like an element, half aluminium, half graphite. Yeah. The grips were changing, so you'd have these uh, old leather grips. You had soft grips. Um, new strings were coming on the market, which had changed the game of tennis uh, enormously, more than anything, I think. Um, different surfaces, so they're trying, you know, different indoor courts and. Uh, 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 hard courts, rebound ace was at, uh, of course, the Australian Open was on rebound ace, this new surface that nobody had heard of was an Australian invention. Um, it's no longer in use, really. Yeah. So it was really experiment, And also, of course, nutrition. Uh, nutrition and, and um, all that sort of stuff was was uh, foremost. And that was the carb loading was when I sort of first heard about it from Yvonne Lendl, funny enough, who ended up being one of my rivals. Yeah. But uh, I was friendly with him as a young guy and, and he was just taking this carbohydrate diet, and Martina Navratilova was as well. And I snooped about that and said, "Gee, you know, this is, a, you know, I might be able to get an advantage here." And and uh, you know, things, of course, are always changing. Um, you know, back in, you know, the locker room, uh, the old Wimbledon locker room, members' locker room, used to used to walk in there, and those old members were always there. So it wasn't as if it was exclusive. Yeah, it was almost as if. You were invited, the players were invited to be part of the club for a couple of weeks, and we should be very privileged to be part of the club. Yeah. That was sort of the attitude that they had. And we're not going to move out of our locker room. The players can move around us. They can sit around us. So you'd walk, yeah, regularly you'd walk in, there was an old member there who was just getting changed, and out you go as you came back from a match, you know, sweating, dripping with sweat, and you'd bump into an old member, you'd say, hello, sir, you know, and, you know, and... Uh, at the 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 training room then was literally one maybe two massages be, massage beds a bucket of ice an old ultrasound machine um, one trainer one 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 physio and then one tour physio we had one tour the guy was travelling on the tour so there was two masseurs for two hundred players um, and uh, wow. it was very hard to get a massage or get any treatment. And the ice bucket was basically it. You came in with an injury. You said, there's a bag over there and an ice bucket. Esky, esky, go and help yourself, you know, and make an ice pack and you stick it on your arm or your knee or yeah. whatever it was. And you sit in, the, sit in the corner of the locker room for 20 minutes. I mean, now they have machines. They have ice baths. They have about tw- at least 20 massage beds uh, all in the new locker rooms and uh, it's it's a it's a big big difference, but it was an exciting time in the eighties. You know, yeah. we learned a lot. We we just had to adjust. What about after a game, Pat? Would you have a couple of beers, or was it like similar today? They pretty much don't have alcohol at all. Yeah, no, I never had I never had a beer. It was, you know, I I sort of felt that I needed to get a, to an edge. Yeah. Um, and it was it was. I know we look back to you know, thirty years ago, and you think it's you know forever, but. As I said, everything was changing then. Everything was becoming really professional. Um, the professional era from the right at the 1969 when they became the pros, the amateurs became pros. So they had the 70s to sort of work it out. The, the um, there was, as I said, a lot of lot of changes, a lot of money th- flying around. There's all these challenge matches between Jimmy Connors and uh, and Rod Laver and John Newcomb. In you know they played in Vegas for 
you know, it was like it was 500, 500 grand winner take all. I mean, yeah. 500 grand back then, that's like you know, million. 10 million, yeah. you know, whatever. There was a lot of money going around. Well, TV was, a, was, was, you know, blooming. There was lots of different channels starting to pop up in America and, and the players realized, you know what, if we're not professional here, we're gonna, I'm going to get beaten. Um, a lot of guys on the circuit, uh, and they trained really, really hard because it was their living. You lost in the first round, you lost in the second round, you basically didn't have enough money to get to the next next station, you know, the next tournament, yeah. uh, or barely enough. So I came on the back of that and just had a very, very serious hard work ethic and um, that was installed by to all Australians, um, almost all, uh, a couple of probably don't <laughs> don't cover that these days. But yeah, that's another story. So yeah, no, it wasn't any beers that I don't, did hear stories about the guys on the era before me uh, cracking a bunch of beers uh, before they even got out of the locker room. Uh, you know, throwing <laughs> down a six. So a bit like the old cricketing, cricketing, cricketing stories. But it wasn't back back then. It was uh, you know you didn't have your team. You, you look at your eyeballing John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors or Ivan Lendl or Matt Villander. And you know you're thinking this guy's gonna you know he's gonna just gonna tear me apart if I'm if I'm not ready. So it was very very competitive and uh, and you know very serious. Yeah, Pat, that competitiveness. You know, you just mentioned before about sharing things with Ivan Lendl about the diet and things like that, and Martina as well. You know, when you're traveling as a pack and you're at the same events, were you friends with any of those guys? Could you trust them? Uh, yeah, I pretty much trust them all. Uh, you know, we 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 lived together. Um, mm. I think most of them are nice guys. There were some who weren't. Uh, I never really got on well with Ivan. I uh, got to be honest. Um, he was just a different character. Yeah. Um, but most of the guys, you know, I had no problems with. I grew up with Stefan Edberg, you know, um, and Matt Spielander. Matt was one of my friends. He's one of the guys that I would, you know, have a, have a drink with. If we lost a tournament early, we'd try and find a rock concert or something to go to. And uh, John McEnroe is the same, but. You know, in in the end, we didn't have very few players had a had an entourage. Uh, and now they had to the last fifteen years have had to extend the the uh, players box areas because you know on the centre court to you know fifteen twenty uh, people. Yeah. Um, back in my day, you know, you're you're privileged to have a coach, uh, full stop. Um, and you know, I was. Well, there's no doubt I was the first person to have, a, you know, a trainer, uh, a coach, and a, a psychologist, uh, and, and a physiotherapy travel with me at certain times, usually Wimbledon or the Australian Open. Um, uh, and people were just like looking at me, go, who are these people? Who yeah. are they? You know, what do they do? So, well, that's my trainer, that's my physio. And that's, they look at me, shake their head and go, what do you need all these people for? You know, and it kind of sometimes it rubbed up Tennis Australia the wrong way when it came to the Davis Cup, and I'd have these people around me, and they go, no, 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 no. This is you know these people. You're not you're not playing individual now. You're you're playing for the country, and we'll provide everybody everything for you, and they'll be our people. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, no problems. Just I want you to know these people, are, you know, they're my my people, and they're helping me become as good as I can possibly be. And I'm I'm not I'm gonna you know I'm not gonna stop at being the best as I can be. So. Um, but you know, the guys were good. I mean, I, I think, I don't know about the women's locker room. I've heard it's slightly different, but most of the guys were good guys. Um, and it'd be a bit like white line fever. Uh, you walk across that, as soon as you walked across that, you know, the service line, uh, out of your chair, um, it'd be, you know, you'd want to rip each other to pieces. Um, and there'd be, you know, there'd be rackets flying in the locker room afterwards and the 
maybe a few words being said, um, or probably a lot of words being said to each other across the locker room about some <laughs> dodgy line call or conning or whatever it happened to be. But then you'd get over it, you know. And uh, I suppose I learned those lessons early on from Jimmy Connors, Illy Nastasi, and McEnroe. If you didn't stand up for yourself, they'd just walk all over you. Um, and I think, you know, John Newcomb and some of the old Aussie guys just played, they played tough. And, you know, you, you had to do that. And, you know, I was just extremely competitive, so I didn't mind it. Didn't mind a you know a bump or a word. Uh, <laughs> didn't sort of bother me too much. <laughs> hey Pat, you just mentioned you know you know you guess you were a little bit before your time having your team and things like that. You know, speaking to high level level athletes like yourself and just across different sports, just does come up a lot about the importance of having just that great inner circle. Can you talk a little bit mm. about how important that was for you? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I. Uh, well, it's absolutely crucial. As I said, that we didn't really have teams, but um, I, I think it's really important as a, as a person in general, um, just living your daily life, is to analyse yourself regularly. And, you know, we have that, we do that in the New Year's resolution, don't we? We sit down and go, you know what, next year I'm going to do the you know, A, B or C. I'm going to quit, you know, drinking this or I'm going to stop eating bad food or, you know, whatever happens. I'm going to spend more time with my kids, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, as an as an athlete, I think, and also, or if you have a have business, you've got to do that just almost all the time. And and so we've we're and I think that's sort of become popular. Uh, and in many ways, over over analysing. Uh, unfortunately, I think um, we see football clubs, and certainly over here in England, I live. You know, you're speaking to me from London here, mm. but uh, you know, if you if you lose three games in a row. You know, Chelsea will get rid of their manager and, and just get somebody else. You know, for you know, forty forty million dollars for the year. You know, pounds for the year. Uh, they chop and change. I think too quickly. They don't give people a, a chance. But um, but the inner circle. You know, you, you've got to have confidence in your inner circle. And um, and they were absolutely crucial to me. I wanted to be the best that I could possibly be. Um, and I I was lucky enough to find very good people to help me be be better. I needed to be a very good athlete, hence Anne Quinn. I needed to mentally, you know, it's no, uh, to anybody who's listening there and who knows me will know that, you know, I, did, I used to, you know, be pretty competitive and fiery and sometimes very rarely, but occasionally, you know, let, um, you know, let my emotions or, or a bad line call get to me. Yeah. Uh, didn't have Hawkeye back in those days, of course, remember? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, we, we just get pretty steamed up by by a bad line, a shocking line call. No professional umpires in those days either. So, um, you know, I needed to got psychologist psychologist to help. But you know, I analyze myself regularly. You know, how can I be a better dad? You know, that's that's the most important thing. You know, uh, we talked just talked about diet. What's a better diet? What's what can keep me healthy? I've got aches and pains. What's going to help me here? Um, you know, I've just been a grandfather for the for the third time, uh, and I'm supposed to be something. Yes, but I'm, I'm I'm heading up to to see my daughter in Oslo because it's the most important thing in the world to me, and and um, you know so uh, you know traveling a lot at, at the moment um, or on the road, it's it's uh, it's and coaching. I have to do that now for my my player um, Coco Vanderway, who's done a fantastic job this this, this uh, you know in 2017, going from 36 in the world to 10 and. And she's poised nicely to, to do some, some, some more damage. And, 
you know, I always when she when she loses a match, she should she looks sort of looks at me and you know, and now she just goes, "What's the plan?" I go, "Right, you're right. I've got a plan." <laughs> so she knows uh, she knows I've got a plan. I go, "See something is going wrong." I say, "Okay, I've got to fix that," or "We've got to do this," or "You know, you're not playing enough, or you're playing too much, or you're training hard too hard, or too little, or whatever it happens to be." Um, at the end of the season, it's just a matter of keeping a player fresh. You know, if you see, you talk to the football coaches, rugby coaches. You know, you get to the final series, this is like, well, let's keep the players fresh. And that's what it's like for, for a touring player. You know, we don't have 20 people around us to, to help us do this and to put us on the bus and to take us to the to the swimming pool to cool down. And, uh, you know, five, five masseurs, you've got to sort of get your own team and do it yourself. So you're thinking on your feet constantly. And, um, and you know, in a circle of, of if somebody doesn't work, I suppose you... You give it a try, um, and uh, and you move on. And at some stage, you know, Coco and I might look at each other in the eye and go, you know what, it's something, it's not quite working anymore. Maybe it's best, you know, you get some other input from somebody else, and I'll move on. Uh, and you, you know, that's just that's just life. But uh, I think people tend to be a bit of a knee jerk reaction these days, uh, as far as coaches and chopping and changing. It's just almost it's it's almost laughable at the end of the every year, doubles partners switch. To somebody else, and then new coaches. Is, you can't even keep up with what's going on. There's so many, so much yeah. change in game. Hey, Pat, with uh, Coco, she's American, right? How yeah. does she, does she base herself out of America, or do you fly in there? How does that work? Um, yeah, she's she lives in San Diego, mm-hmm. so um, it's been a bit of a learning curve. Uh, I haven't really sort of done any coaching since Greg Rizetsky or Mark Filipousis. Uh, sort of almost swore off it then. I started up my own academy in, in Australia, in the Gold Coast, Hope Island there for about 10 years and mm. and uh, then sort of went into more broadcasting and still doing some legends work. So I've always been traveling, but, um, you know, we've just got to manage the schedules. So, you know, I'm talking to you today. Uh, I'll be heading off in a couple of days to do pre-season with her. So I'll head to San Diego. Um, she's got, uh, you know, a... a her regular physio's about to have a have a baby. Well, actually, his wife's about to have a baby. But yeah. but um, so he's out of the out of the loop. So we're just sort of trying to get the team together. Um, living in London's just been it's uh, it's it's perfect for me because it's sort of very central. Yeah. Um, tennis in my day was sort of very even between Europe and America. There was there was two tours going on. There was it was uh, the um, WTC tour or WCT? God, I forget. World Championship Tennis. WCT, I think. Um, tour, which was run by a well, back in the early in the professional days when the tour became professional, there was a silver baron called Lamar Hunt, and he decided he loved tennis and he was going to start a tour. And then there was the other uh, people, just AT like ATP or, or different then, but they decided to start a tour. So there's two rival tours going on. Yeah. And so, and a lot of it was in America because Lamar Hunt was American, and so a lot of the players settled over in America. Well, eventually, he got fed up with having to compete with the ATP and said, "Screw this! I'm not spending any more money. Um, that's it. You know, I've given up with, with you tennis players." Which made most of the guys like myself, who only just started going onto that circuit for a couple of years, yeah. think, "Oh no, we, you know, we just missed out on the big money here." Um, but Basically, since then, everything's mainly moved to Europe. Most of the tournaments, most of the money. Uh, there's a splattering in Asia and China and, of course, Australia but and a, and a couple, few in America, but mainly Europe. So I base myself here, as, of course, my kids as well. 
Um, so Coco does, you know, comes over over to Europe quite a bit, and she'll be she'll be making her way for the big European season. But you know, I just have to travel, man. And being Australian, you know what it's like. You got to you're pretty used to get jumping on a plane and yeah. traveling for 10, 12, 24 hours. You know, it's just the way it is. And uh, it's not much fun being jet lagged and messed up for a couple of days. But you just got to do it. Yeah, Pat, as like the coach, the mentor. You know, I'm just on her page now. And U.S. Open, she made the semifinals. French Open, what she made the second round. Wimbledon quarterfinals, Australian Open semifinals. So mm. she's right there, like. When does that stage happen when you guys start sitting down and like nutting out where you guys wanted what you want to do in 2018? Um, we've talked about it briefly at the end of the end of the year, a few uh, at the end of the season, a few weeks ago, um, when she was coming into winning, which which I think was the highlight of the her year, which is winning the Fed Cup for the US. Mm. Um, she was so excited. She's very passionate American. Her mother was an Olympian. She's grown up wanting to be an Olympian, and she ended up being tennis. And uh, uh, you know, the tennis is in the Olympics now, so she wanted to play for her country. And, and the the equivalent team thing in tennis, of course, is the Davis Cup or, or the Fed Cup for the ladies. And um, so, you know, it was a real, real tough end of the season because she was playing all the way through. We sat down at some stage, and I said, "Look, you know, what are your goals? Let's start thinking about some goals next year." Just a Kind of to keep her motivated, really. Yeah. Um, she's ticked off more boxes than she could have possibly thought last year, and uh, she didn't even. I looked at her. Um, uh, her. She gave me because uh, I've just come on board the last you know, six months or so, but hmm. she showed me her her goal setting list, uh, and she uh, for the for seventeen, and she ticked off way many more boxes. Uh, she thought she could be the top ten or get to a Grand Slam semi final, and she did that twice. Um, but you know, I've got ideas for her. I think I really do think she could be top three in the world. Um, and look, injuries aside, um, I believe she will be. Uh, you know, I mean, who knows with injuries, but um, I think she will be, and I think she can get to a Grand Slam final. I think that's that's what we. I think ultimately we want, and now she, she, I think she's put on the list defend the, the Fed Cup for her country. So, uh, which is, which is really, I, I enjoy that because I was such a passionate player for my country, and very rarely do you get that now. And um, so she says, I want to play Fed Fed Cup, and and most of the Davis Cup players or Fed Cup players sort of look at the schedule and go, oh, now we've got to go fly all the way back home to play play one month, you know, over the weekend and fly all the way back the other side of the world. Uh, I don't know when it got to that stage where players think that their ranking is more important than playing for their country. I just don't know when it happened. I, I, I put a lot of blame on Andre Agassi, to be perfectly honest, because okay. he was the first guy that said he wouldn't play for his country. And it was a big scandal you probably don't remember, but it was literally off the back of us playing, losing to them in the St. Petersburg in Florida in 92, 93. Um, Australia lost to them. Uh, and uh, then there's a big scandal a week later because he was talking in a restaurant and there's a reporter literally in the booth behind him. He didn't know, and he's talking to his people going, you know what, I'm not going to play. The, the, screw the Davis Cup. I'm not going to play the first round. You know, I don't, you know, he had some issues with the association or whatever. I'm not going to play for him anymore. Reporter heard it, uh, put it on the newspapers, and everyone went, oh, yeah. what, he's not going to play for his country? You've got to be kidding me. And he, and he stood by and said, no, I'm not playing. And then Pete Sampras stood up and said, yeah, I'm not going to play either. And then all of a sudden it was 
as acceptable to not play for your country. So, um, you know, it's 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 kind of happened. And I, I know Mark Philippoussis did that in Australia once, and you know, I think he regretted it. You know, saying he wouldn't want to play. And of course, if Nick Kyrgios or somebody says he, you know, he doesn't want to be here or whatever, it's it's big news, and it should be big news. I mean, why? If you're not ready to play for your country, then put your hand up and say, "Listen, I'm mentally, I'm just fried." Put somebody else in, mm. but um, you know that happens from time to time. But but um, anyway, so look, that's one of her that's one of her goals. And I think as a as a coach, my the the only thing for me is to make her a better player. That's that's my number one thing. And you know, I've sent her videos. I've got videos on how to improve her X, Y, and Z shot. Uh, and we got to get them better, and it's really tough to do that on the circuit because uh, you just don't have much time. You don't have time to, to work on things, and I remember Neil Fraser saying to us, uh, of course, the legendary Davis Cup captain who yeah. captained me for many years, and and uh, I remember the laugh. I remember the conversation really clearly because Wally Masur was there as well, and, and he said, you know what, you guys, we were a better player than you guys. And we all kind of laughed. Oh, yeah, everybody says that phrase. <laughs> yeah, you play with wooden rackets. You know, look at you play with Dunlop volleys. And how can you be better than us? We've got the power strings and the rackets. And he said, yeah, I'll tell you why we're better than you. Because at the end of every year, we went to a training camp for three months and made our shots better. And you guys don't spend more than a week doing that before you're back on the circuit again. So that's why we were better. Because we worked on our game. And we sort of went, ooh. Gee, he's got a point there, yeah. and and it's it's absolutely and it's true. He's right. We don't have much time as a coach or a player to work on the game, so you have to do that on the road. Now I go to Coco and I say, listen, you know, I think we need to work on fix this, hmm. and she goes, uh, what, when do you want me to do it? In my first round net tomorrow? I'm like, well, no, but I'm just saying that we've got to work on this. So let's, every time we go on the practice court, let's try and get it a little bit better. But she's got to have the confidence to make a change if it's a significant technical change. We're going to find two or three weeks to do that. Um, luckily, we have broken the back of a couple of those things, but you know we'll be doing some technical changes. Uh, and there's, you know, in, in a, basically all I've got is ten days, two weeks to do that coming up. So the women have, generally speaking, it's an unusual year for Coco, but generally speaking, they have two months or two months off, and then they can rebuild. The guys tend to not, so they have to work. They have to almost be a by the time they get onto the circuit, they have to be fully fledged, you know, a, a technically perfect player with you know with minor things to fix up, um, and and then they just got to work at it, work at it until they become tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so players like Kyrgios or Zverev, guys like this are coming on the circuit. They have very few weaknesses. They've just got to be mentally and physically tougher. Yeah, Pat, do you think we'll see? players play less just in comparison because at the start of the year we saw Roger Federer he won the Australian Open then he pretty much took the clay court season off came back for Wimbledon won Wimbledon and it just was seemed that he played the least tennis that he has and he's playing his best tennis kind of how do you see that playing out yeah like he's he's managed himself really well hasn't he Federer uh that's one of the reasons why at 36 he's just moving brilliantly beautifully you know he's a odd back thing that creeps up you know, Federer aside, I think he's a bit of he's a bit of a freak. You know, you get these guys that are just physically kind of freakish. Uh, I think Bjorn Borg was one of those as well. Um, most people, I mean, some great athletes like Djokovic, Murray, they're all great athletes. But Federer is very light, yeah, and he he moves like he's very light, doesn't he? He's almost 
glides across the court and he's a ballet dancer. And if you sit, ne- if you stand next to him in the in the uh, you know underneath somewhere in the locker room, or and you look at his left arm, and he jokes about it himself. He says, "You look at his arm, you think my little daughter's arm's bigger than that." You know? <laughs> my daughter, you know, my teenage daughter's arm is is bigger, got more muscles and more and thicker than Roger Federer's arm. But he's packed with muscles. So he's got this, what I like to say, is he's sort of like a, got a, he's got this light motor, uh, light chassis, like a, motor, like a racing car. It's super light, almost like made of fiberglass. And then just pile it with all this energy and muscles. And it just flies around the court. And, and it's, it's almost as if he's not carrying anything. Uh, where the bigger guys, the Murrays, and I suppose Boris Becker or me, and, and some of these heavier guys, Vavrinka, um, well... We'll break down. We're just we're just heavier guys, and pounding the courts all day. It's just not good for us. So, very very rarely do you see a big guy, ex tennis player, that has is not hobbling around, you know, with a bad limp or a new knee or or a hip. But Federer has done really well, and he's managed that well. And and I think one of the reasons Nadal is still playing, which I can't believe he's playing at the when we saw him at the age of nineteen, I think everybody said this guy's not going to get to these thirties. He's not going to last past twenty six. But in many he has had a lot of injuries, so he's had a lot, quite a lot of, you know, six months off, four months off, you know, another four months off, and six months off. So he's had these little breaks to to re-energize himself, I suppose. But um, yeah, at the age of thirty, these we were we were regarded as gone uh, back in our day. Yeah. Um, the era before when they played a lot on the grass, a lot better on the body. They did last a lot longer. Uh, Ken Rose or Rod Laver, these guys lasted to their mid thirties, even. Well, Ken Rose will last it to his 40. But uh, there was a lot on grass or softer on the body. But, you know, we had the old shoes on the new hard surfaces. Um, so, it, you know, the 80s and 90s, the guys pretty much broke down. But now with physiotherapy and better technology and better shoes and better recovery and ice baths everywhere, the players can uh, can last longer if they manage themselves well. And Federer is no doubt about it. Federer has been – and Serena Williams – um, let's put her in that category as well have managed their careers managed their schedule better than anybody guys we hope you're enjoying the episode with Pat Cash we've had some absolute cracking episodes of late the likes of Caroline Buchanan three of the Socceroos legends in Jackson Irvine Matt Yerman and Bailey Wright a couple of real icons in Wayne Gardner and Steve Waugh Shane Hill Andrew Weddinghouse and the list goes on I'll leave you with a little bit of a snippet if you haven't yet Check out our episode with Clyde Rathbone, former ACT Brumbies and Wallabies winger. It was an absolute cracker. So here's a little sneak sneak peek from the episode with Clyde. So it, it, it wasn't hard for me not to sing the anthem. And I'm not one for nationalism and uh, even you know aggressive patriotism. is not something that I find uh, particularly attractive. So, you know, I sang the Australian anthem... Um, it was it was a conflict of emotions. I'm you know, standing there and hearing the South African anthem, and just in that moment, thinking about how you know, life you set up on these paths, you never quite know where you're going to end up. And then I never could have predicted that one day I would have been in Kings Park, which was the stadium that I went to watch all my childhood heroes play, and I'd be yeah. singing Australian anthem. So, guys, go back, check out the episodes with Clyde. Like I said, there's a whole back catalogue of great episodes for you to check out 
you want to connect with me, probably the easiest way is via Twitter. I'm at TalkingWithTK. Or please, send me an email at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. All right, guys, let's get straight back to it with our interview with Pat. Yeah. Pat, how important is mindset? For example, when you're in the zone and you wake up one day, do you know when you wake up that you're going to have an awesome game? Um, uh, no, not really. Um, I think you have a good idea of, of, of how you're, how you're hitting the ball. You feel like you're hitting the ball well. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. The zone is, is a subject that, um, it's the elusive thing. How do you get into the zone? Um, and there's no doubts that the zone is, is stress-free and, so you need to be in a stress-free situation where time almost stops and and you're flowing around. I've only been it once in my career, and and um, when was that? That was, ironically, it was in Johannesburg when it was apartheid time. Not uh, probably one of my greatest moves, <laughs> moves my career. But I had to go down to Johannesburg. It was in '87 to qualify for the Masters or the ATP Finals. Now, I was number nine in the world, even though I won Wimbledon and got to the final of the Australian Open. The Australian Open ranking points weren't, weren't high in those days, for whatever reason, anyway. Um, and Brad Gilbert, the American player, who is... Used to coach uh, Agassi, right? Yeah, coach Agassi is a great pundit. And, uh, and uh, coach Leighton Hewitt as well? Anyway, um, yeah, he was, he, was number, he was number eight. So he was a top eight qualifier. So we both decided to go down to Johannesburg to, to, to win... To qualify for the Masters, and as it turned out, he and I were playing in the final. Whoever won that match would qualify for the Masters over the whole year. Came down to one match, and uh, I won the first set. And you know, I was so determined to win. I won the first set, and and then I lost the next two sets. The best of five set finals in those days. I lost the next two sets, and I was just so frustrated. So there I was, two sets to one down, and I was just. And at that stage, I almost just given up and I wouldn't say given up as far as it wasn't trying but just given up on the frustration was just beyond I was boiling my head was steaming I was screaming I was yelling I was just and then I just sat down in the changing room and, oh. and I walked out there and I don't remember anything other than the last game wow I won 12 I won 11 games straight and it was six love five love and I just remember sort of stepping out of it and going Six love, five love. Wow. And Gilbert won one game and I served it out. The six love, five one. I think the crowd roared and five one actually finally won the game. <laughs> what did Brad I say played... to you after? Well, I don't know. He said much, but I, I, I just played flawless tennis. Everything flowed. Everything was smooth. Everything was just time stopped. So it's a, and it's a funny thing because the athletes trying to get in that zone and it's a lot, you know, you think of, you, you're trying to think of meditation, which, which I've always been a huge believer in and do a lot as a daily routine now. Hmm. Um, and how do you do yours? Uh, well, I, it's, I do a variety of things really, but for me, what really works is just actually sitting alone and quiet time. Yep. I do have some rich, a little ritual. I have, sometimes I have music, but I have a, uh, I have some things that I, you know, basically put myself into a bit of a, uh, you could call it a trance, I suppose, but it's just a relaxed state. Um, and it's getting, it's an understanding of, of where I am at in as as a human being on this plane of Earth, 
And once you realize that you're actually, you know, you're connected to a higher source, um, things become more relaxed. And, and there was, there was something I dabbled in during my career. Um, but when you're in that state and the, the, the gurus and the people will tell you that, uh, you know, time stops and you see everything clearly. And so you need to be in that state, but yet you still need to be running around and panting and chasing after a tennis ball or what, or watching a golf ball or what it happens to be. So it's sort of a, a very, it's a fine balance. And, um, you know, I've realized the older I get that it's, what's the saying? Uh, the, the saying on this, the, the ego says, um, when I'm, when I'm all set up, I will have fine, fine time to meditate. And the spirit will say, when I have meditate, everything will be, gets, will be set up for me. So it's something along those lines. I can't remember the exact words of it, but I used to have it on my phone. But in other words, it's funny how we are day to day. We say, look, once, once, once my life gets organized, then I'll start to meditate and relax. But it's actually the other way around. Once you start to meditate and relax, everything will fall into place. Yeah. And, and so it's a fine balance as an athlete to try and find that. But as a non-athlete now, I find I can drop into that. And I'm much, much happier person than, than I uh, – and everything sort of seems to flow. Um, I don't worry about money. I don't worry about anything. It drives my, my accountant, my manager, and everybody else crazy. What's your plans? What's your goals? All this sort of stuff. And I don't have any. I literally do not have any. I wake up and see what pops up on my phone or my emails because I have a true and 100% confidence that my higher power, God, whoever, what do you want to call it mm. – Buddha, Allah, Jesus, whatever is is under is is in control of my life, so I don't worry about anything. And and I've noticed that I've known that because various things have happened in my life where I've been uh, that uh, I've been in, you know after divorce and financial trouble and yeah. various issues emotionally and even uh, you know drinking and partying too much for a brief period after my career. I just I just handed. Just said, I, 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 I'm not in control of this anymore. Somebody take over. And I remember that. I remember the day that happened, and I looked up. I remember one day I was so frustrated with my finances and didn't know what I was supposed to be doing in life. And I literally looked up the sky. And I said, Will you please take over what's going on, my finances and everything? I just want to work. I want to work less and earn more money. Doesn't everybody? So I said, <laughs> Please, please take over that. And not more than half an hour later. Phone call came in from an old tennis buddy of mine. He said, "Pat, um, in September, this was when I, when I did this was about April. I mean, yeah, September, uh, I've got. To, I want you to play one doubles match, and I want you to play it in Luxembourg. Uh, be tax free and for this much money." And I was like, "Are you serious? That much money?" He said, "Yeah, yeah. How's that?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you about that. Let me get back to you." He's like, "What?" I said, "Let me get back to you. Let me go get check my schedule." He said, "Did you just hear what I said?" I said, yeah, 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 let me get that back. And I hung the phone up and I said, holy, well, wait a minute, I just asked for this. Yeah. I, I just literally asked for this and then I'm now turning it down. I called him straight back and said, yes. I said, oh, I thought you were going insane. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And he said, you're going to get back to me. And, and, uh, and a couple of other things like that have happened and um, where I just had to trust that something higher was looking, was, was, was helping me. And since doing that, uh, my life's just been in a flow state, like I was talking about, this sort of meditated flow type of state. It's not to say that I don't have my moments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by, by a long shot, believe me. I don't have my moments where I 
something doesn't fly across the, the kitchen in frustration. But, um, you know, it, and it's, it's the biggest step that I've had to make in my life, no doubts about it. It's just to say, you know what? Somebody's going to look after me. Everything's going to be okay. And the more I fight against what I'm supposed to end up doing, the more, the more frustrated I'm going to get because God just says, no, 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 you're not supposed to be doing this. You're doing this. No, 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 no. I want to do this. I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I think I'm going to lose this battle. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Pat, you, you spoke about, you know, when you first retired, you know, you were partying for a couple of years before you found what you really wanted to do after tennis and things like that. When you did decide to retire, can you tell us a little bit about the effect that it did have on both your mind and your body, not being on tour and not training as much as you used to? Yeah. Well, I sort of reluctantly fell off the tour because... Uh, look along. I just couldn't get into the tournaments anymore. I literally could not get a wild card. I couldn't get into the tournaments. I was 31, had a lot of injuries. People sort of forgotten about me. I was playing some legends events. So I was still sort of staying fit, and I, I'd re, I'd re, fixed my game. I'd, I'd broken my game down with a great biomechanist called Brad Langevad, another Aussie who lives in Toowoomba, and Brad and I just pulled my game apart and, and rebuilt it. And I came back with this better serve, better forehand, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, I want to really want to play now. I want to test this all out. Um, so I was really frustrated I couldn't get into the into the tournaments. So the only way if I could get into the get my ranking back up was to go back and start playing in, you know, small places Challenges in Spain. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my. You know, and I had a family. And uh, I just – I said, look, I just can't do that. I can't do that. So – this my career was taken away from me by these sons of bitches from the tennis the run tennis tournaments. I mean, how dare they take not give me a wild card? How dare they not let me into a tournament? How dare they not give me you know uh, those are protected rankings? That was just protected ranking. It was just starting to come in then. Yeah. If you're injured, you get a protected ranking to, to let you in the tournaments. Uh, you know, and I I just hated everybody. I hated the world. I hated tennis. I hated anybody to do with tennis, and. And then my career was gone, and the only thing I knew about was tennis, and the only thing I knew to do was to use, you know, to use my body, and it had been injured on and off the whole time. Um, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, luckily, I sort of fell into a bit of commentating over, throughout my injuries. So I thought, well, but that's not going to make, I mean, that's a little bit of money. It's not like it's, you know, you can, can make a living out of a bit of commentating. So I don't know. I suppose I just found that uh, through all the serious tennis and the hard work and the training and being the fittest athlete in the world, I believed I was, um, finally it was all gone. I went, screw it. Let's, hit, it's hit, let's, let's go out to the nightclubs. Let's, uh, let's have some fun. And so I did, you know, and, um, uh, and I had a lot of fun. I've got to be honest. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. But, you know, I still, but I still had kids, so it kept me grounded enough um, that, um, you know, I couldn't be out you know, taking drugs and partying every every night. Um, though I did dabble in that and, and had a lot of fun, but it's uh, it soon wears thin. It soon wears thin when you wake up sick and tired and your kids are screaming and you got a shocking hangover. Um, I think we're probably a lot of us have been there once or twice, but you no know, once you, once you start, once the kids, you wake up at two in the afternoon and the kids are like, "Daddy, where you been all day? Oh, I'm getting over a hangover." You can only see their face a couple of times before you realize, oh, gee, what am I doing? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those, another example of just looking at yourself in the mirror and going, mm-hmm, okay, I'm going to have to fix this. So, uh, yeah, I had the fun, but, you know, 
had to do it uh, do it at the right times, I suppose. Yeah. Just take you back to the start, just the origins. You know, the first couple of minutes when you came on, we talk, talked about servant volleying. What attracted you to servant volleying, and who taught you how to do it? It was the law in those days. <laughs> As Australians, you had to do it. That was just the law. Uh, that was the rules. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was funny. I, I suppose most Australians grew up, uh, in my era, grew up as attacking players, having to learn all the shots. Um, and the, the net play and the volley was was tough. I actually, because I grew up in Melbourne, I grew up on the Auntie Car, the courts, the clay courts there, and I was primarily a baseline player. Uh, but oh, wow. coach, yeah, and no, I didn't anywhere near the net. And uh, the kids used to laugh. Um, you know, the, the tactic was to try to get me to the net, and the, I wasn't very good at that. But my coach, Ian Barclay, was fantastic, and he made me play a lot of doubles. He made me play a lot of cross-court tournaments, country tournaments, um, wherever I could, just played and got into the net. And uh, he literally told me, he said, he said, right, you serve bowling first and second serves. And I'm like, but, 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 he said, I don't care. No ifs and buts, you're doing it. Uh, all right, okay, so if I see you stand at the back of the court after a second serve, first, second serve, I'll come over and kick your butt. And he's, uh, he was half serious. He was a great guy. He was, but he, uh, <laughs> he was more bluff. More bluff than anything, but he, he was, but he, he understood his, his kids. He's like my second father, really. And which and, made it? Um, well, you know, fate would have it, as as we've talked about so many times today. You know, just uh, things of. I my dad decided to move out to. Um, we used to live in Baldwin in Melbourne, quite reasonably in the, in the city and central. Um, my dad decided he wanted to move out to Donvale to get some land and. He'd um, uh, get some space, and I went to school one day. And I knew one kid at the school, uh, Whitefriars College. I recognised this guy called Warren Brennan, and he was number two in the state, uh, junior, a year above me. The only kid I knew. I went, "Hi, how are you going?" He's, "Oh, hi, how are you going?" And I said, "He said, well, who are you, what are you doing?'" You know, I didn't know you from here. I said, "Yeah, and I just moved here. You know, who, who do I? Who's good coaches?" He said, "Oh, Ian Barclay." I said, "Oh, yeah, know him. Well, he coaches Mark Hartnett. He coaches me. He coaches Ann Minter." I was like, "Oh, wow." He's, a, he's an awesome coach. So mm. he was around the corner in Heatherdale. So I ended up just pure, pure ass, just finding this, this guy, Ian Barclay, who was, uh, he was a good, decent, uh, uh, well, state player, national player, but never got the opportunity to travel internationally like, uh, like the other players. They, he uh, didn't quite have the money to travel overseas in those days, but he was a very good player and great with tactics. I mean, just the best there was. Uh, he knew exactly how to play. And so he taught us all how to how to play, how to play, how to win, basically how to win, and then um, and as well as developing your whole game. And then after I got on the circuit, uh, just started creeping on the circuit at seventeen, eighteen. I had a, a real wake up call with one one match, and I had this guy who was attacking me. I was up six two five two or something like that. First round of a smaller tournament in America, and this guy just started chip charging me, coming in on everything. Um, and he got back, and I ended up winning the match, but only just. And I was just shaking with nerves uh, because this guy was just attacking everything, just running in and attacking. And he was quick, and he was all over the net. And and uh, he just changed his tactics to, towards the end of the match, figuring he's going to lose. Yeah. And I just came off shaking, and I and, uh, went, you know what? I want to play like that. And that was as simple as that. I said, I'm going to play more like that. And we just developed the game. And McEnroe, John McEnroe, who was a, tactically was my favorite player to watch, so I sort of copied him. 
Yeah, we know you spoke about fate so many times in this. It just a lot of your major moments, Davis Cup, Women Wimbledon, even a couple of times when you lost, it always seems to be coming back to someone that's Swedish. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> yeah, I can hate those Swedes. Uh, <laughs> evil Swedish people. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, the problem is I actually all my they're, they're nice guys too. As I said, um, yeah, a couple of big matches were. Uh, yeah, the two the two ones that, I suppose are the two that got away with the Australian Open finals and uh, yeah, one to Ed Berg at, at Kuyong. Um, I kind of walked away from that feeling. I was disappointed, um, but I'd also had a terrible done something to my shoulder during the tournament. Uh, very windy Kuyong days, blustery Melbourne days. Missed it a couple of serves and did my shoulder in, so I, I couldn't really serve properly in the final, and I almost. Got got out of jail, you know. Almost snuck away with Edberg, you know, killed me the first two sets, and I just sort of worked my way back into the match, and and I had a stage where I, in the fourth set, uh, where I was up double break, that was to bring it into the fifth set with momentum going through into the fifth set, um, and my shoulder was just dead. It was literally like a dead arm, like somebody give me a dead leg, you know, a corky or whatever. Mm. And I just I served, I think two games in a row, I served three double faults, uh, and I, my mate of mine. Recent, not that long ago, recently pulled this up and said, "Is this you?" And he pulled on his big screen. I was like, "Please, <laughs> please don't show that." And uh, I watched in there three double faults one game, three double faults the next game, and Alan Stone and John Alexander are going, "Oh, oh, well, he seems to, you know, they didn't know really what to say." Just, I'm sitting there going, "How did I?" But I couldn't feel my arm anymore. And uh, Edberg, I ended up winning the set, but Edberg got his momentum back, and so I sort of, I almost snuck out of jail with that. But I walked away going, "Gee." I kind of blew it, but I never really thought I had it in the first place. And then, then Melbourne Park against Phil Ender, uh, the first year, that was that was a heartbreaker. I got to say, um, I played a great match, and I just lost it, you know, to a to a very very good player. Um, you know, it was a great atmosphere. New Melbourne Park was under the under the roof. roof first time yeah. it was under the roof. Uh, so you know, it felt like sort of my uh, the Aussie guys felt like it was our arena because you know we're having done so well in the Davis Cup and. We've almost felt like this arena was built for us. You know, they built it because of our, on our back of our success. And so, uh, you know, but look, you know, Matt and I are good mates. We've played each other hundreds of times since in exhibitions and Legends events. And, uh, you know, we get on great. He's one of the good guys actually on the circuit. And we actually had a drink that night. We went out and my, <laughs> my coach and trainer, we went to the Metro up the uh, top of uh, Burke Street there. And that was, the, that was the nightclub to be in. And Matt's happened to be in there. And so uh, we had a drink together, and um, you know that was—I uh, think he was a bit surprised by it, by it all. Here I am buying a round of drinks for him and his mates as a congratulations, and uh, he's like, "Oh, that was looking at me, going, is he real?" You know, <laughs> it's an Aussie oh, thing to do, though. Yeah, we're we mate. Oh, it was a heartbreak. It was absolutely. You know, ripped me to pieces, but uh, you know, you got to get over it, don't you? Yeah, was the Australian Open really tough in terms of like because of where you were in the rankings and you were Wimbledon champion as well? Was there just heaps of expectations? Did you even like really playing at the Australian Open? No, I didn't at all. Um, it's funny because yeah. I just hate the Australian media. Um, can I be as brutally honest with that? I just, mm. I really just don't like the Australian media. Never have, and I, I to, to this day, I think it's just tabloid. A lot of it, not all of it. There's a lot of tabloid rubbish, yeah. and and still is. I think it's worse now. Uh, the cooking programs and DIY programs and whatever else. Uh, it's just 
terrible TV, um, terrible media. They just want to know junk. They just want to know you. And so whenever I came into Australia, I felt like they just weren't interested in what I was doing. They just weren't just interested in a, in a story. And um, uh, and that's you know to this day, is, you know, it's still the same. And so I felt uncomfortable. I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to go in and practice and do my own thing. And and yet when I walked on the court. I just thought everybody was sort of against me. That 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 all they wanted was a story. They wanted me to lose. Uh, Australian wanted me. Everybody in Australia wanted me to lose and and wanted me to throw my racket so it was a big story and I'd get a fine and I argue with the umpire and that's all they'd see. I want to play a great match, but I had a you know, five second conversation with the umpire and that was all over the TV at night and the sports you know in the sports news. Cash argues with the umpire. Yeah, it was for five seconds. You know, over a four hour match. Uh, but that was, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm just not talking to you guys. You know, I don't care. But yet when I was on the court, the fans were fantastic. Everybody was, the people were supporting me. So I was sort of like, oh, well, that's really cool. As long yeah. as I don't talk to anybody, I just talk to the fans. And that's sort of where I got the, you know, throwing my wristbands out and headbands sort of thing out. It was like, hey, you guys are cool. You can have this. Yeah, you Media, started that trend. Piss off. piss off. I said, maybe you can piss off. But yeah, all this, you know, the players... They throw their t-shirts and their towels into the crowd. You know, it was, that was sort of something I started, and it's it a way of thank, thanking the fans. So yeah, there you go. You guys, thanks. Yeah, have the wristband. It's sweaty. Sorry about that. But <laughs> um, and then I walk in the press conference and just sort of shut up, really, and just wait for them to make some snide, nasty report and goad me into saying something. And of course, I I bit a few times, didn't I? <laughs> I made a few <laughs> nasty some comments, but you know, there you go. That's you live and you learn. Yeah. Was it tough to go? from the grass at Kuyong straight to the new stadium in 88? Well, I think the Aussies, we love the grass. Um, I think we, as players, which was nice, the Tennis Association consulted us uh, as the mainly main Davis Cup team, but all the guys down uh, the top, you know, half a dozen or so, at least players in uh, the Australian team, uh, McNamee, McNamara, Fitzy, Edmondson, you know, they all consulted us to say, what surface do you want? And we kind of came to the consensus that yeah, they probably won't put grass in, uh, but let's ask them anyway. Um, and our, our, our thing was, what we don't want is that we don't want the Swedes to come here and take our titles with a slow court. Um, and, of course, um, they did it anyway. They <laughs> 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 came one the first year anyway. But we but we got a reasonably fast court. We wanted a fast court that, it, that sort of which would least benefit our our uh, style of play, attacking style of play, and um, that that we all played. And so we said we want grass, and they said no, it's not going to work, guys. You know, it's indoor. It's a indoor stadium. Um, you know, we we need a, a multi surface. It's a public courts. We need something that's, that's going to be fine, good all year. So okay, well then a fast hard court. I said, okay, well, we'll come up with something. And they had Rebound Ace, um, which was a rubberized surface, Australian-made surface or developed surface. And we, we all liked that. We thought it was a great idea. And as long as it wasn't too slow, that the uh, baseliners, not that Edberg was a baseliner, but, uh, you know, yeah. we're thinking of Lendl. We're thinking of uh, Villander and Lendl particularly in, in uh, uh, Metchier, Melislav Metchier. I don't even remember him. But, you know, they were the sort of players... We wanted it fair, and a, and a fast hard court is fair for both types of players. Yep. A slow hard court is just way too much favouring to, to the baseliner, and a really fast grass court or indoor is probably, you know, too fair for the uh, 
for the serve volley. So he wanted something in between. And uh, when a court is even bouncing, he's not going to get any bad bounces. That favours somebody at the baseline, favours somebody who can pass and somebody who can return. Uh, you know, it could be the other way around. If you've got a grass court that's chopped up, it's going to suit Sampras or the serve volleyers or somebody like that. So a fast, hard court is, it was fair. And I think the whole... And I, I think it was a very fair court. Uh, I think the cert, tennis circuit in general, and we talked about the dying serve volleying, as, as you mentioned, there's not that many around. For the, for the last couple of years, three years, the courts have been quickened up. But for 10, 15 years before that, it's been... Primarily just slow, hard courts, which favours the baseline player. Even the great Roger Federer was a serve volleyer, hmm. and he decided, this is not going to work. I'm just going to stay at the baseline. So he became a better baseline player, and he lost his serve volley, and he sort of got it back somewhere in between now. But but it was – and, you know, I don't – look, I'm a huge fan of players, you know, like Nadal, uh, Djokovic, and Murray, but, you know, they wouldn't be as successful as they were if the courts had been quick. It remained – Fair, I'd say fair, which is a, which is a, a medium to fast hard, which is fair for everybody. Yeah, they wouldn't be nearly successful. Nadal has played his whole career on slow courts, and as soon as something gets remotely fast, he goes, "Oh, it's too fast, it's too fast." You look at us old guys, we shake our head. You go, "He has no idea what fast is. He's never <laughs> played on a fast court in his career. Not, and I'm serious. Maybe one tournament he's played on a fast court. Yeah. Um. So. You know, and he and he's able to adapt. Of course, legends like him are able to adapt. But uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, so moving to to Melbourne Park, I think was 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 a pretty good for us Aussies. It was it was pretty reasonable, I think. Yeah, Pat, what meant more? Your two Davis Cups playing for Australia and winning in '83 or '86, or winning your first Grand Slam? Uh, personally, it was probably Wimbledon, but I think uh, overall joy. I think the Davis Cup. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, is that because you could celebrate with other huge. people, or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have my mates to celebrate with. It was well, look, as Aussies, we grew up, watch, you know, watching the the cricket or the rugby or the Aussie rules, and they're all team sports, you know. And we feel like as supporters, we're part of the team. So when they then your team wins, and you and the eighteen guys out there, or ten guys out there, or twelve guys out there, you know, they're all celebrating. They're they're celebrating as a team. And in tennis, we don't do that except for when it comes to Davis Cup. And yep. having we've got the great tradition. I mean, Australia, we should be so proud of our Davis Cup tradition. You know, these guys back in the 50s, and you know, they would get on the boat and they'd get go fly all the way, go all across, so fly, sail all the way across <laughs> the world, <laughs> sail to you know to America or to to Europe, and they'd say months on months on end, and um, you know, teams being with together and. And they become best friends, and they're best friends forever for life. And they be rooming together and staying at people's houses when there's no money. And uh, you know, so we sort of had that tradition of, yeah, teams. You know, yeah, Aussie rules and ashes and all that sort of stuff. And and so we've always loved that. I think it's sort of lost slightly these days, but um, I think we still we've still got a very proud Davis Cup tradition. And, and as has. Funny enough, the France just won the Davis Cup. They got a massive tradition of Davis Cup. They're the same. Um, so the old tend to be the old leaders in tennis: America, Australia, Britain. Not so much. Though they have developed it recently again because of uh, Andy Murray's success. But yeah. and the French, Italians, uh, Argentinians with Guillermo Villas. So they're ones. The, the I suppose the old school. Um, Nations who've played tennis for a long time really do still have a great tradition and 
Davis Cup yeah. or Fed Cup. All right, Pat, a couple of personality ones just to wrap things up. First things first, I've always been intrigued. Where did the headband and earring come from? <laughs> uh, the headband came from, well, just first of all, I, got a, I sweat a lot, so I need to have a headband. Um, <laughs> but uh, otherwise, it rains in front of my eyes. So, um, But the, the checkered headband, well, funny enough, one uh, Wimbledon one year, uh, it was before Wimbledon, a girl sent me, she just made one white bandana. Um, it looked like it looked like a, uh, a dressing gown, you know, a band that went around the dressing gown or something like that, you know. And and she just sort of looked like she cut it in half and gave it to me. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, it's not a headband, a circular headband. It's one you could tie up in the back. Yeah. And being a bit of a rock and roller, I thought, oh, you know, that's yeah, it's a bit Guns and Roses. That's a bit you know, a bit rock and roll. And um, the, the the pattern came from the black and white came from Cheap Trick, the uh, uh, the rock and roll band who. It was my first sort of band that I, I followed and even wrote to their fan club and tried to get a letter back, which I never got. Um, <laughs> but the guitarist, and that's I was sort of picking, I was getting into guitar music then, and the guitarist had black and white checkers everywhere. Uh, all over his guitar and his, and his uh, guitar strap and everything. And, and so that's where that came from. And I, funny enough, uh, I, had, I did meet him many, 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 many years later. Um, and uh, I, I interviewed him for a radio program here in the UK, and he knew that I was a big fan. He gave me his checkered uh, guitar strap, so uh, which is which is very cool. So that's exactly where the I gave him one of my headbands. I said, I oh, know it probably doesn't mean much to you. You're probably not into into sport, which he wasn't. Yeah. And I said, I said, I've done more advertising for Trick around the world than you could probably ever imagine <laughs> without people knowing it. <laughs> for sure. And, and then, then the earring. The earring. Oh, the earring. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just like to. To have an earring or something. I don't know. It's kind of rebellious, wasn't it? I mean, uh, I think my poor parents must have shaken their head sometimes and go, "What is he doing?" So I came back with a pierced ear one day, and uh, and um, that was it. So uh, yes, it's developed a couple of couple of holes in my ear, and now I almost feel a bit. I'm a bit too old to to have that sort of stuff. But uh, screw it. Anyway. Nah, <laughs> grandpa can have one, mate. It's fine. Yeah, exactly, grandpa. Cool, grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> mate. You've travelled around the world. What was your favourite venue to play at? Oh, um, you know the one. I, I mean, Wimbledon is very special. There's no doubts about that. I think that's there's no. That's it's a private club. It's it is it's fantastic. Um, on for noise wise, I think New York is very hard to beat. New York, uh, U.S. Open. I had match point in Lendl in the semi final in '84. That was the best, the closest I got. And that was um, that was what they called they named it Super Saturday, um, which uh, what they used to have in the U.S. Open was the semi-final of the men's on the Saturday, and then the final on Sunday evening. So he didn't have a day off, so okay. he played five-set match. And that day was they say the greatest day in U.S. Open tennis history. So I'm very proud to be part of that, even though I was a loser. Call me a loser, but that's the way it goes. Um, there was Newcomb played Stan Smith in the Legends match, and I think yep. it went to. 6-4 in the third or something like that. Then uh, Navratilova beat Chris Abbott, um, something like 7-5 in the in the third. I lost to Lendl 7-6 in the fifth. And then McEnroe beat Jimmy Connors 7-5 or 6-4, 7-5 in the fifth. It was something like 12 for, for a price of, I don't know, 50 bucks. It was 11 hours, 11 and a half hours of the top tennis. And uh, so they called it, named it Super Saturday. And 
And uh, it's only in the recent years now that they've changed it to semi-final on the Friday to give the guys a bit of a rest. It was brutal. But it was all about TV. The Americans, they had one, net, one TV um, network cover the whole tournament and then, the, and then the CBS or whoever it was, the big one, uh, paid loads of money and said, we want the semi-final and finals on the weekend because that's what we've got. We've got football the rest of the time or whatever. We want them there. They said, yep, no worries. We'll put them on. Uh, kill, the, kill the players. I mean, just killed us. Um, but uh, that was the atmosphere that was just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. I've never had that before. You play Davis Cups and the crowd go crazy for you, but to sort of just have a, Americans who scream and yell and they're right in your face and that's something else. But the venue I like the, maybe the most now is, is Roland Garros. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a really good venue. Um, and uh, Indian Wells in California, they play yep. that tournament uh, in April, March. That's a great venue as well. So there's, uh, but there's, you know, indoor tournaments tend to uh, tend to have some great atmosphere too when you're, when you're playing a Davis Cup and the crowd get into it. So it's, it's uh, I suppose it's about the crowd. Really, mm. The French get right into their I love being in Paris, but um, the French just love their tennis and get right into it. And yeah. They let you know if, if you've played a bad shot. They really let you have it. <laughs> One thing I forgot to ask you before, when you play someone like, just for example, Stefan Edberg, and you're both great servant volleyers, does it annoy you having to play like another servant volleyer? Do you prefer to go tango to tango with a baseliner instead? Yeah, it's, it's funny. You tend to be kind of good at what you... If you're a servant volleyer, you tend to uh, be good at that. So you, you don't want to really have to hit you know, a lot of baseline shots. Um, so in many ways, uh, playing a Cervalio was better than getting up against somebody who, like uh, Pernfors or Lendl or, or Villander or somebody like that who just never missed a ball because you realize you'd have to hit you know, 20 shots of your weaker part of your game to win a point. So... But it, and there was quite a lot of serve volleys in those days. Edberg and McEnroe were just, and Becker, of course, um, were just unbelievable at their, at their job, you know, uh, Sampras after that. But um, they were just so good at, at volleying, so quick around the net. Um, even to this day, I play McEnroe in exhibition matches, and I walk off the court playing him every, every time, just shaking my head, go, how did he still do that shot? How did he do that? That's just phenomenal. Uh, he had the uh, most incredible touch I've ever seen. I mean, just the control was just freakish. Um, so it was always a it was a challenge, but yeah, it was. Um, you mean you had to return better, and it was probably wasn't one of my strengths, but neither was theirs. So it was, it was a battle of uh, yeah <laughs> tactics. All right, Pat. Final question, mate. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party now. You've got five invites. Oh, okay. Now only rules: no family or friends, but it can be anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? Dead or alive? Well, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna. Uh, that'd probably be three that I'd like to start with. Um, uh, I think they're fa- fascinating people. Um, yeah, probably, I don't know if it would be, I don't know if it would really be any sports people. I mean, I'd like to, you know, maybe some uh, so, some rock stars. Um, it would be, uh, would be fascinating. Uh, and I've always had a passion for... Um, uh, medical science. Wouldn't it be great to see okay. um, talk to somebody like I don't know a, a surgeon? I think because I, I, I had so many in, injuries over my my career. Is a is a is a building um, uh, in, here in London, which a friend of mine was staying at, and I picked him up one day uh, in Mayfair, 
And it was a, it's a big old sort of apartments everywhere. And, and he said, well, this used to be a hospital. I said, oh, no kidding. Yeah. He said, he said, you know, Grey's Anatomy. Well, you know Grey's Anatomy from the TV program. Yeah. But Grey's Anatomy before that was, is a book. It's, a, it's a, literally a book on anatomy. Okay. And it's all drawn. It's all drawings of the body. Now, <clears throat> Grey, it was a doctor, a doctor Grey or a surgeon called Mr. Grey. He used to take the bodies from the top of the hospital where my mate's apartment was. When they died, he dragged them down there and he'd, he'd uh, cut them open and, and, and um, uh, you know, give an autopsy and, and draw, draw stuff about the body. And, 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 uh, and Drew basically created Grey's Anatomy right there in that, in that building. I just think it'd be fan, fan, fascinating to, to hear about how the, how the body works and, and injuries and all oh, that sort of time. stuff. So, yeah, maybe a surgeon or somebody like that. I don't know exactly who, but something like that. It's a, a failed, uh, yeah, I don't know if I, I get past very far in medical school, but <laughs> I think that, fasc- that, that fascinates me. So it's probably, the, yeah, a bit of the afterlife, you know, what, what, what are we, what's our, you know, what, what are we doing here on earth? Uh, so some spiritual leaders and a, and a couple of exact opposite of all about the body. <laughs> no, something <laughs> different. I haven't, I haven't had that one yet, so that's a very unique and uh, interesting actual answer, that, Pat. Oh, there you go. Well, Pat, I really appreciate you joining me today. Before I let you go, mate, everyone get following Pat online. You can catch him at www.patcash.co.uk. I'll tell you what, definitely... .net, 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 .net. .uk? I think it's .net. I'm on uh, No, just dot, just, not, just .net like a tennis net. Yeah, no, you know so what? I've got... I'm on there now. It's www.patcash.co.uk. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. I think both, I'm pretty sure both work. Both will go sure the same thing. Work, yeah. yeah, but definitely get on Pat's yeah. newsletter too. It's uh, fantastic. comes out every couple of weeks. Gives his little views on what he's working on, what he's, what he's watching, what he's listening to, what he's reading. It's quite, it's quite interesting. So keep that up, Pat. Also, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's really easy. It's the real Pat Cash. There was a fake one somewhere, so I had Mate, to put the real fat Yeah, there's just a fake one. I don't know who would do that, but there was somebody <laughs> trying to steal it. Surprised, mate. Thanks. <laughs> well, thanks very much. It was great fun. Nah, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, you're an absolute idol of mine growing up, so I really appreciate the chat and going down memory lane. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much, mate. We'll right. do it again. Guys, a big shout out to everyone who's tuned in. I really hope that you enjoyed the interview with Pat Cash. If you if you did, please tag both myself and Pat in a post on Twitter. Let us know if you enjoyed it or send me an email at tristanatalkingwithtk.com. I'd love to hear from you. We've got a bumper, bumper lead up into Christmas. I'm doing lots of interviews. Cricket, young youngst, youngster cricketer, Hilton Cartwright. He'll be next on the show as well. And we'll also be hearing from uh, league legends such as Rennie Matua, Bo Robinson from the Union. We've got Richie Barnett, former Sharky, and Sydney Rooster. So that'll be my next couple of episodes there. So stay tuned. If you haven't yet, please subscribe for free via iTunes, or you can also catch it on Stitcher. If you don't have access to either of them, please log on to the website, www.talkingwithtk.com. All the show notes, as well as the episode guides, all the episodes, all the players, they're all on there. So if you haven't got access and you've got an Android, please jump on the website. It's pretty easy to do. Guys, we really hope you enjoyed the 50th episode. I really, really enjoyed bringing it to you. So like I said, if you've got any guest requests, feedback, or anything like that, please send them through. And like I've always mentioned, 
please also share all these great stories with your family and friends. All right, guys, that's it for today. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.